Well, good morning, New Hope. If you don't happen to know me, my name is Gary Post. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, Mark and Laura Lee, Mark Kring, that is the senior pastor, is away this weekend on a little vacation in honor of Laura Lee's birthday. It's her 39th birthday, uh, <laughs> again. Well, today we're going to focus on how prayer has the capability to release God's power into the, the, the course of events in our lives and then also in the, in the events and the history of nations and how it can change the whole trajectory of a, a nation's history. But before we do that, let's go to God in prayer and ask him to, to be in this time together with us. Dear Father, we know that, uh, that nothing of any eternal consequence happens in our lives in general or especially in this time together this morning unless your Holy Spirit is here empowering it and so we ask that uh, that you'd be here in power that you'd fill us and that you'd uh, make us attentive to your word what you're trying to share with us and that you'd use it as uh, as your tool to to further transform us into the image of your son Jesus Christ so that we can evidence his character in this world we live in and, and we ask these things in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus Christ amen well, uh, Derek Prince, noted uh, Bible teacher and author, uh, wrote a book some time ago called Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. He passed away in 2003, and he cited a number of examples of how God used the prayers of, of God's people to uh, shape the direction of history and, and, in fact, change the course of history. And he noted, too, that uh, Christians, as Christians, we have a duty to pray for our government, pray for the direction of our nation and what's going on here, and, and for the world. And that, uh, and that we should be praying for our leaders, no matter who they are, that God can work through them and change history in response to, to prayer. One example that he cited was in, um, in Egypt in World War II, actually in 1942, uh, during the course of the World War. Uh, the, the war was not, uh, Prince himself, the author, was, was attached to a medical unit with the British Army in 1942 and in, in North Africa. Now, the war was not going well for the Allies in, in North Africa in 1942. Uh, perhaps you remember the name uh, German General Erwin Rommel. He was called, the nickname was the Desert Fox. And, uh, and he, had, he and his Africa Corps, a tank, uh, tank divisions, had, had pushed back the British Army over 750 miles from Tripoli all the way back to El Alamein in Egypt, the longest retreat in British military history. And the situation was dire for the Allies because if they lost Egypt, uh, they would not only lose control of the Suez Canal, but they would lose the Middle East oil fields, and, uh, and Palestine, where, where the, the uh, Jews were residing at the time, would be overrun by the Nazis, and everybody knew what that meant. And, and Prince at the time attributed much of the continuing defeat of the British forces to a, to a lack of leadership or, or incompetent leadership, and, and he asked God, how shall I pray about that? And, and God gave him this prayer that he, he prompted him to, to pray. Lord, give us leaders such that it will be for your glory to give us victory through them. That's a, that's a prayer for all time, isn't it? Not just for that time. 
Well, Prince continued to pray that prayer every day until ultimately the, the British government uh, withdrew the general who was in charge of the British Army in North Africa at that time. And the, the first general they chose to replace him was killed when his plane was shot down en route to Egypt. Uh, the next general that they chose to replace him was handpicked by Winston Churchill himself. And, and Churchill appointed a man named Bernard Montgomery to lead the British Eighth Army in Egypt. And uh, Prince said that uh, Montgomery was the son of an evangelical Anglican bishop. And, and he was God's kind of leader in the sense that, that he was uh, just and he was God-fearing. On the evening before the Battle of El Alamein, October 23, 1942, General Montgomery called together his commanders at his headquarters and he publicly called all of his officers and men to prayer with these words. Let us ask the Lord, mighty in battle, to give us the victory. The next morning, Montgomery attacked. Over the next few weeks, General Montgomery and his forces broke the back of Rommel's renowned Africa Corps in a series of decisive tank battles that Winston Churchill later called a decisive turning point in the history of World War II. You see, God used a godly leader and prayer to change the course of history in World War II. Another leader who changed the course of history was King Jehoshaphat. We'll read about him this morning in 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat, again, was the kind of leader that God uses. He was both just and he was God-fearing. 2 Chronicles 17 says that he, he followed the example of his hero, King David, in that he sought after the Lord, he followed the Lord's commandments, and he taught his people to do likewise. As a political leader, he taught the people about the ways of God, their fathers. He instituted reforms in the way that the country was run, and, and uh, he eliminated corruption, and he ensured justice among the, the people. But a threat arose. Things were going well. He was doing what God had intended for him to do as a leader. Uh, but a threat arose, and we're going to read about it in 2 Chronicles 20. I'm going to be reading out of the, the uh, English Standard Version. It's the same version that's in your pews, 2 Chronicles 20. Uh, if it helps you, it's right after 1 Chronicles. Okay. It, whoever's got the, the page number first, would you shout that out? If you look it up in the pew Bible. I'm sorry? 372, thank you. 372, that'll make it a little easier. We're going to read just the first four verses to start with. 2 Chronicles 20, it's going to be on the screen as well, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Joshua was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all of the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. And notice, first of all, that this, this threat was imminent and it was catastrophic. These uh, armies were not coming against Judah to steal a few cattle. They intended to kill or enslave every man, 
woman and child in, in Judah. This was life and, and death for Jehoshaphat and, and his people at the time. It's very similar to the situation that our brothers and sisters in Christ face at the hands of ISIS right now. Many of the same players involved historically. It's a, it's a dire situation for Christians under ISIS control as well. And as a, there's a principle here that I wanna, wanna draw out of this passage, and that is that, uh, first of all, that bad things happen to good people. That just because you're a child of God, a follower of Christ, a, a Christian, does not make you immune from difficulty or hardship or even catastrophe in your life. In fact, God uses occasions of hardship and difficulty in our lives to, to either test and grow our faith and remind us of our dependence on him, or, or in some cases, to chasten and correct us when, we're, when we've been disobedient. Uh, Hebrews explores that a little bit, that whole chastening concept, Hebrews 12, if you're interested in, in looking into that more. Uh, if we drift off, for example, into a pattern of sin, uh, God, God will uh, sometimes use hardship and difficulty to draw, him back to himself, uh, draw us back to himself. God knows how to bring us to our knees, doesn't he? And remind us of our dependence on him. But that, that was not the case with Israel at this point. He was not chastening them. He was testing and, and growing their faith in the same way he allows us to experience trials from time to time in order to test and grow our faith. And, and again, uh, if you want to explore that concept further, you can look at James 1 where he says, uh, count it all joy, brothers, when you experience various kinds of trials. And then he goes on to explain what God is doing uh, through those trials in, in our lives. But what should distinguish us is, is the way that we respond when we're confronted with crisis in our lives. Uh, because as, as Christians, we should respond differently. I'm reminded of what uh, a nurse told me at Sparrow Cancer Center when I was undergoing radiation treatments there some years ago. She said, uh, she said, Gary, I can always tell the, the Christians, they're the ones with hope, you see? We, we respond to crisis and difficulty in our lives differently, and God can use our example of patient endurance in the lives of other people to draw them to Christ. Well, stepping back into our story, notice Josh, uh, Jehoshaphat's immediate response here. He, he was afraid in verse three. The Bible says he was afraid. It is not a sin to be afraid in the face of a threat. It's what we do next that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Jehoshaphat responded in three ways. Notice in this passage that he didn't try to gin up all kinds of do-it-yourself solutions. He didn't call his generals to, in to say and say, we've got to come up with a new battle strategy, or, or we've got to enlist some more people in the army, or we've got to come up with a new weapon system to deal uh, with these enemies. That are, he didn't do any of that. He, he immediately turned to God. And, and so we read, first of all, that he set his face to seek the Lord. That is, his entire focus was on seeking God and, and seeking God's help in overcoming this enemy. He turned his attention to seek the Lord. And, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. It wasn't just him as a leader, but he called the people together and focused their attention as well in prayer and fasting on God's deliverance from their, their enemies. Fasting is a spiritual discipline or, or a practice that puts us in the way of the Holy Spirit and allows, us to trans allows Him to transform us. It's like prayer or uh, Bible reading or worship or, or praise or solitude or, or giving or fellowship. Those are all spiritual disciplines that draw us closer to God, put us in the way of the Holy Spirit and allow, allow Him to change us. 
Fasting is for the purpose of intensifying our, our prayer and our focus on the spiritual side and, and setting aside for a short time those, those physical needs so that we can focus on our connection with God and implore him for his help. So he called the people together for, for prayer and for fasting. And, and thirdly, he prayed to God for help. Let's look at the content of his prayer in, uh, in verses 5 through 13. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? He was praying in front of the assembly of the people here. Let's remind ourselves of that. You rule over all the kingdoms of, of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. What Jehoshaphat was actually using here was much of the language of Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple. And he, he pulled much of the prayer language for his, from his prayer from the prayer that Solomon prayed some years earlier when he had dedicated the temple. And, and now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. I love this next line. This is pivotal to the whole chapter. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not, do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So that was their situation. Jehoshaphat believed, and you can see that from his prayer, he believed unconditionally in God's power to save. Why did, he, why did he believe that way? Why did he have such trust? Well, he modeled his life after, after his hero, King David, who, who knew God's track record. And, and David did that because he'd studied the way God worked in history. In Psalm 143, 5, David says this about the way he went to school on God. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. David went to school on God to understand who he is, how he responds, how he works in our lives uh, to deliver us. I often say that uh, for, for us as Christians, that we read the Bible to understand who God is, his faithfulness, his mercy, his justice, his love, all those attributes and then understand how he works in our lives and how we can access his, his power. Well, knowing God's track record gave Jehoshaphat an unshakable faith. You might say that what Jehoshaphat believed about God determined what he did next when the crisis came. This is just as important. Uh, what Jehoshaphat believed about God determined what God could do through him when the crisis came in the, in the life of his nation. Notice that this crisis did not shape Jehoshaphat into the man of God that he was. He came to the table. He came to this crisis 
as, as a, a person who had a deep relationship with God, a deep understanding already of who God was and, and how he works. And, and that's, what, that's what prepared Jehoshaphat and allowed God to use him in this crisis to save his people and to shape the course of events. The lesson for us is don't wait for a crisis to come in your life before you cultivate a powerful life with God. That has to happen beforehand. Then you're ready when the crisis comes in, in your life. Know God's word and his promises. Spend time with him in prayer before the crisis comes. That way our response won't be, why me, Lord, when something happens to us? Or why are you doing this to me, God? But, but rather, Lord, what is it you're trying to accomplish in my life? What deeper work are you doing in me through this time of difficulty? Uh, what are you trying to do through my life in the lives of those people around me? I often say to somebody who's suffering from a life-threatening illness, you know, this, this all isn't just about you. It's, a, it's also about what God is doing through your example in the lives of the people around you. So what are you trying to teach me, Lord? Uh, what are you trying to accomplish uh, through my example in the lives of other people? Jehoshaphat knew God's promises. He, he prayed them back to God. And you notice in verse 9 especially, he reminds God of the promise that, that God gave to King Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 6 and 7. Some folks say sometimes, well, we can't claim a promise because it was given to somebody else. And we do have to be careful about claiming particular promises like, uh, uh, like uh, God giving Israel the land. You know, that's probably not one that applies to, applies to us. But there are many others that do. And in this case, you see uh, Jehoshaphat claiming a promise that was actually given to Solomon on behalf of, of Israel. And he even uses Solomon's language in his, in his prayer to God for deliverance. So Solomon's request was part of a larger prayer that Solomon made at the, on the occasion of the dedication of the temple. He said this, he, he asked God for this, if your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen, that is Jerusalem, and the house that you have built for your name, that is the temple, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. In other words, Help us win, Lord. Help us win. God's promise in response was this. He appeared to Solomon. If you read in uh, 2 Chronicles 7, he actually appeared to Solomon and, and responded to all of Solomon's requests. This is part of his response. God says, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. God um, was poised to help Jehoshaphat when he was asked. There is power in praying God's promises from his word back to him. But friends, if, if, you, if we don't know God's word, if we're not familiar with those promises, then uh, we won't be able to pray those. We'll have little power. We'll see few answers to prayer. Well, Jehoshaphat acknowledged that they were dependent on God. They were powerless to defend themselves. They had no plan B. He didn't know what God would do. As we often don't know what God's going to do in a particular situation. I, I just um, did a funeral for a, a woman who, who died in a house fire recently. Uh, she was uh, uh, deaf and mute and had, uh, was mentally disabled as well. And, and I said, I, I, I don't know. I don't try to explain why God does certain things. I never try to explain God. That's always dangerous. It never ends well. But I said, I, I know who God is. I, I know that he's perfect love. 
and, and that uh, he intends only good for us who belong to him. So uh, Jehoshaphat didn't know uh, what God would do exactly in this situation, but he knew who God was, and so he had great confidence in him. He understood how God works in our lives, and he understood what David did. And David talks about who God is and how he works in Psalm 34, 15 through 19. And notice, as we read this passage, what it tells us about who God is, what his attributes are, and how he works in our lives. Uh, David said, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. God is poised to hear and answer our prayers. That's a promise. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Does he always deliver us in the way that we would like? No, not necessarily. Sometimes he delivers us in a different way, doesn't he? And sometimes he doesn't deliver us in our timing, but in his. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We're not off the hook. We're going to have afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, the Lord delivers him out of them all. And, and that was true then. It's also a promise that we can claim now. You see, Jehoshaphat recognized that this was not just a physical battle uh, against physical enemies, but it was a spiritual battle, and that, that prayer and praise would release spiritual power to defeat flesh and blood enemies. The same is true for us today. This wasn't just about the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meonites. It was about the larger cosmic battle uh, that exists between God and Satan that's still ongoing right now, in which Satan repeatedly attempted to destroy Israel so that God could not carry out his plan of bringing the Messiah out of Israel, out of Judah, out of the line of David in order to save the world. That was God's plan. And Satan tried repeatedly to wipe out Israel. This is one of those occasions. Demonic forces were behind the, the nations at that time that were trying to destroy Israel. The same demonic forces are behind ISIS, stated an intent to to uh, exterminate Christians and, and Jews today. Many of the same players in terms of nations that were, were present at the time of uh, Judah. Paul speaks to that spiritual battle, the spiritual nature of the battle that, that you and I are engaged in in Ephesians 6, one, uh, Ephesians 6, 12, excuse me. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That battle is always ongoing. It's behind the scenes. We can't see it, but it is no less real than what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears. Make no mistake, friends, that in, as New Testament Christians, we're engaged in the same kind of spiritual warfare, both for the future of our nation and the future of the world, and also for the hearts and minds of people around us. That's the prize that God and Satan are competing for. God desperately wants uh, everyone to come to the place of faith in Jesus Christ. Satan is doing everything he can uh, to defeat that, that effort on the part of God. So there's a spiritual battle underway for the hearts and minds of our kids and our family members and our spouses and those we work with and everyone else we encounter. Paul tells us how to fight that battle. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we're walking around on this planet as human beings, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not guns and bullets, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Uh, fortresses, those spiritual entities that hold people prisoner and that keep people from God. We're destroying speculations, that is, false beliefs, silly uh, myths. And we're destroying every lofty thing, every lofty argument raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Friends, our, our weapons are prayer, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. Those are, those are our spiritual weapons which we use to accomplish God's purposes in this world. So like Jehoshaphat, we're using prayer to push back evil uh, wherever we find it and also to break down the barriers the intellectual and the spiritual barriers that keep the people around us from knowing and understanding the gospel and, and, and being saved. It's all the Holy Spirit's work. It's not a, it's not, again, it's not a do-it-yourself project. So as, as Jehoshaphat shows us in this story, uh, spiritual power always trumps physical power, human power. And we see that in Jehaziel's message that we're going to read about next. Back to our story, 2 Chronicles 20, 14 through 19. Uh, Jehaziel had a message from God in response to Jehoshaphat's prayer. In verse 14, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael. Son, wouldn't it be easier just to use last names? <laughs> son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you. That was the trademark of a prophet of God on whom the Spirit of God had come to deliver a message from God. That was a trademark in those days. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the, of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Here's a question. Do you think anybody slept that night? <laughs> we're we're all, the, all of them laying awake, staring at the ceiling. Uh, remembering God's promise. I, tomorrow, go out in confidence because I'll, I'll be with you. Question for you. How do, how do you and I typically respond when we encounter crisis or hardship or, or tragedy in our lives? When we uh, lose a job, when our marriage is in trouble, when our kids are prodigal, when they're living far from God, when we have an unfaithful spouse or a life-threatening illness, a broken relationship, a financial setback, a deep depression. How do we respond? I, I have to tell you that um, my instinctive human response sometimes is a, is a, a do-it-yourself, problem-solving, fix-it-yourself kind of an approach. Yeah, but what I'm finding, what, I'm, what God is teaching me over time is that so many human problems are, are not do-it-yourself problems. They're problems that only God can fix. And, and I, need, I need to release his power into those situations in, in order to, uh, to fix them. 
some of you know that, uh, that my first career was as a state trooper. I retired back in 2000, many years ago now. Uh, but in the late 70s, I was working the freeways down in Detroit. And, and uh, I remember on a Saturday, sunny Saturday morning, I was out on the Davison Freeway and, and pulled over a car with a, a young dad and, a, and his uh, five- or six-year-old son in it. And uh, he, he climbed his car up on the berm, and, and we, we had a nice chat. He was a nice young guy. And, uh, and as, uh, as I prepared to depart, he said, uh, he, you know, let me tell you something funny. He, he said, uh, as, as I pulled my car up onto the berm, my son said, uh, what's the matter, Dad? Car trouble? And, and he said, yeah, son, the worst kind. <laughs> I always get a kick out of that. But, but friends, the application here is that, is that uh, as Christians, uh, the worst kind of trouble in our lives is the kind we don't give to God. We hang on to it ourselves, and, and we try to fix it ourselves, and we worry and fret about it. And men, I'm going to speak to you especially uh, right now because uh, God made us. He wired us to be action-oriented problem solvers. Uh, we're people who like to, to get it done. We like to take action. We like to feel like we're doing something uh, about a problem. But, but we, we have to know that there's a time to ask for help. I often joke that uh, men don't pray for the same reason we don't ask for directions. We don't want to admit to anybody that we need help. But friends, uh, Jehoshaphat had an army behind him, and he still knew when he was outgunned and, and when to turn to God. Even the toughest guy knows when to call for backup, and, and men, you and I will never be more powerful than when we're on our knees in prayer, doing battle for our wives and our kids and those we care about, releasing God's power to do what only He can do in transforming relationships, in overcoming sin, and in changing human hearts, because that's what God does. That's his business. We see that in Je Jehoshaphat's approach to trouble. In verse 12, he says, I love this verse. He says, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let's repeat that together, shall we? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know how many people I've prayed that verse with when they were in crisis, and, and I didn't know what else to say to them. We just gave it over to God and said, God, you're going to have to deal with this. Uh, this is beyond our capability to, to deal with. Here, here's, a, here's the most prayed promise that I use in, in, uh, in crisis with people when I'm, when I'm praying with people about a crisis that's going on in their lives. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Another version says, don't worry about anything. It's a command from God. Don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, that is asking God, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which is a supernatural peace beyond anything that we can experience on a human level will be given to us. In other words, God says, give me your worries and I will give you back my peace. The only caveat is with thanksgiving, why is it important with thanksgiving? Well, thanksgiving for his faithfulness to us. Thanksgiving for what we know he's doing, that deeper work in our lives that, that we can't understand it right now because it's so painful, but, but we thank him for what he's doing in our lives anyway. We thank him for what he's going to do 
in response to our prayer. And, and that's, that's part of the, the anticipation that comes with faith in God's capability. Giving thanks for the answer you don't yet see is part of the positive expectation that has to be contained in our, our faith. The Bible refers to a, th- a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. How is it a sacrifice? Well, it's a sacrifice when you're in the middle of, a, of an awful situation and you don't feel thankful to give thanks to God anyway as a sacrifice at that time, isn't it? Because you don't feel that. Sometimes that's why it's necessary for those of us uh, to come alongside another person who's experiencing a, a crisis, a tragedy in their life, and, and our, our faith will, will uh, cover them, and our thanksgiving will cover them, and our praise will cover them. A second most promise prayed for those in crisis is Isaiah 41.10. I rendering in, in the uh, NASB, or American Standard Bible, where it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. When I, when I read, do not anxiously look about you, I, I think about uh, what I used to call rubbernecking, you know, looking over your shoulder, trying to figure out, well, where am I going to get some help? God says, you don't need to do that. I've got this. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I don't know how many people I've texted that to in the middle of crisis. God is saying, don't worry, I've got this. You can depend on me. Well, God fights the battle. He said he would, and we read about it in 2 Chronicles uh, 20, verses 20 through 29. This is the climax to the story. Starting at verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Joshua stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Israel. This is a great leader, calling the people together, getting them on the same page. Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they be, don't miss this, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they made an an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil. They found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil, it was so much. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for here they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. 
So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all the way around. Notice the part that worship and praise and thanksgiving play in the battle itself. In verse 22, the word when indicates simultaneous actions. It says, when they began to sing and praise, God set the ambushes. At the moment people began praising him, God set the ambushes uh, for what he was about to do before he actually did it. And, and then he responded. And notice also in verse 21 that Joshua sent out what, what we would call the worship team ahead of the army. D does that seem like a, a good battle strategy? Uh, perhaps not. I said, Michael, I said to, to Michael, Michael, you have trouble getting volunteers now. Can you, can you, can you imagine what it would be like? Poor battle ta tactics on a human level, but you see, Jehoshaphat knew something. He knew that this was a spiritual battle and, and uh, not, first of all, a physical battle. And that spiritual songs and prayers of praise and worship and thanksgiving release God's power in the spiritual realm to change events in the physical realm. The Bible tells us that uh, in verse Psalm 22, 3, that, that our, our praise and worship attract God's presence and his power. Psalm 22, 3 says, God inhabits or dwells in or abides in or is enthroned on the praises of his people. Uh, Derek Prince writes, praise is God's address. It's where he lives. If you want to be where God lives, you must offer him praise. That's why God commanded us in, in Hebrews 13, 15, to live a life that's full of praise. Uh, the writer says, through him, that is Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. We ought to be continually preoccupied with praising God in, in every circumstance. A noted author and uh, Bible teacher Joyce Meyer says this, we gain more and more strength. Our faith increases and the things that are coming against us to defeat us are dissipated as we praise him. Praise releases power in the spiritual realm and it is a form of spiritual warfare that always leads to victory. There's another quote I want to share with you that's not in your notes. It'll be up on the screen and, um, and my wife uh, uh, referred me to it. It's, it's out of the book that's in your book list on the back of the, the uh, study notes there. Uh, the the uh, book is 31 Days of Praise. If you want to increase your capacity for praise in your private worship with God, that would be a wonderful devotional to engage with. Uh, this is what Ruth and Warren Myers uh, say about the power of praise uh, to, to release God's power in our lives. Thank you that when I praise you and bring my request to you in simple faith, I plug into your almighty power, that when I offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, I open a door for you to rescue me and to bless my life, and I prepare the way for you to rescue and bless other people near and far. Notice also that God intervened here in a way that no one could have anticipated. And doesn't he often do that in our lives when we pray and we see God work? Uh, he, 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 come, he brings it back around in ways that we never would have thought of. And that's what happened here. Uh, God deliberately caused confusion in the, in the minds of the enemies of Israel, of Judah, so that they, they destroyed each other. They annihilated each other. Who, who could have guessed that? You can imagine Jehoshaphat's uh, 
generals uh, around the table uh, hatching a strategy to defeat these armies uh, saying, well, let's get them really confused so they, they start killing each other. Well, that's not a strategy. No, no one would have ever guessed that God could do that. But that's something that, that only God can do, and, that, and that's the whole point, friends. God has the capability to resolve complicated human problems, sometimes by changing the, the hearts and the attitudes of the people involved. Sometimes problems are, are just so difficult or, or so tangled up with emotions and antagonism that we can't untangle them. But God can do that. He can bring understanding and compassion and, uh, and peace and the absence of conflict and, and patience and forgiveness and all those things that need to happen sometimes in human relationships. That's why it's so important that, that we bring our, our prodigal children and broken relationships and interpersonal conflicts and financial problems and every other crisis to God in prayer rather than turning it into a do-it-yourself project. God can fix it. We can't. And here's a tip. Worrying is not the same as praying. Worrying is not the same as praying. We need, we need to pray. Sometimes we fret and worry and we think we're praying. We talk about praying. We just don't pray. And, and I, I think uh, God wants us to pray. He wants us to ask for his help. And that's why we're also commanded to pray for our government and our leaders because God can intervene in government. He can intervene in the hearts of those who govern in ways that we can't and in ways that can change the whole trajectory uh, of a nation. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, he said, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone and, and then especially for kings and all those in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Right now in our country, friends, we need to pray for peace and we need to pray for understanding and, uh, and compassion for each other and that people will come together and that the violence would stop. All those things are things that, that we can pray for and alter the, the course of history in, in our country through God's power. We need to lead the way in modeling God's love and grace, the character of Christ in all of these situations. I think too often, if you're like me, we do more complaining about our leaders than praying for them. We think if only we had better people, if only there were people of better character, if only they belonged to a different political party, and on and on. It demonstrates that we're putting our, our trust in government and in man rather than in, than in God. Uh, sometimes I think we continually look for a Messiah in the political arena. He's not to be found there. We do have a responsibility toward government before God. The Bible speaks to that. Romans 13:1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and, and those which exist are established by God. God decides who rules. God orchestrates the destinies of leaders and of nations. He puts them in place and he takes them out. Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In other words, no one is allowed in those leadership roles unless God concurs with that decision. I promise you that God is not wringing his hands 
uh, about our November elections. Uh, God will still be on the throne Wednesday morning. And he will still be in charge Wednesday morning. And he will still be able to accomplish his purposes Wednesday morning. He's not worried about that. God can accomplish his purposes through anyone. Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He can direct the thinking and decision-making of our leaders and any other leaders that he chooses to in order to accomplish his purposes. Well, how do we prepare ourselves to be, to be used by God uh, like Jehoshaphat was in, in the current uh, chaos and, and fear of our times? Well, we can, we can determine to become the kind of person that God can use in a crisis situation. Jehoshaphat wasn't born prepared to be used by God, but he made deliberate choices to study who God was, how God works in our lives, and, and what God expected of him. And by preparing himself deliberately in that way, he positioned himself for that time of crisis when God uh, chose to use him to save his people and change the whole course of history. Paul encouraged Timothy to prepare himself in the same way. Uh, he compared our, our life together in this world as a large house. He says, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared for any good work. How do we prepare ourselves? We, we prepare ourselves by being deliberate, by training in God's gym. You know, I go to uh, Planet Fitness about four mornings a week. And uh, I do that because I want to be deliberate about staying in, in reasonable shape. And, and I want to salvage what's left after all these years, you know. And, and, uh, and try to reverse the course of, of, uh, of uh, aging. But I notice in there, there are people that are very deliberate and purposeful and th that move uh, between machines and they obviously have a routine and a pattern to what they're doing. Then there are other people who, who kind of stand around. And because they're at Planet Fitness, they think somehow they'll become fit by osmosis. <laughs> well, I, I often say to people uh, uh, that y you don't become uh, a Chevy by hanging around in your garage. You don't become a Christian by hanging around even in church. You have to train to be the kind of instrument that God can use. Um, and certainly church is, is part of that training, uh, but it's not, the, it's not the whole ball game. We need to be deliberate about training in, in God's gym. And, and Paul uh, encourages Timothy to be purposeful and deliberate about that. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. An example would be an example of an irreverent, silly myth would be um, what's true is whatever you believe to be true. That's common in our culture right now. We can define our own reality, and that's that's just not case, not the case. What what uh, is reality is what God says is reality. Everything else is somebody's opinion. Uh, some time ago, I was cutting up summer sausage for uh, the the uh, the men's study downstairs, and Mark came by and he says, "Is that venison sausage?" I said, Mark, if you believe hard enough, it can be venison sausage. <laughs> you see, the point is what we believe doesn't, doesn't make it reality, does it? No, God defines reality, and, and uh, everything else is something less than that. Um, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly mess. 
Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. There is something about training for godliness, folks, that will matter in eternity. We don't know what that is yet. Will it, be, will it make a difference in terms of our roles and responsibilities in heaven? Perhaps. Uh, you could make that argument. We don't know precisely. But, but what we see here tells us that it will matter for eternity, uh, that, that training that we do in, in God's gym right now. God used Jehoshaphat to save his people because he was prepared. My question is, who is God positioning you to save in your network of relationships? Who is God positioning you to have an impact on for eternity? I'm going to encourage you to take the next steps to, to prepare yourself. Engage with God's word daily to see who he is and how he works in our lives. Um, I've included a, a, a Bible reading plan that many of you use already in your, in your bulletin. On one side, you can read through the whole Bible in a year. On the other side, you read through the New Testament in a year. It's just a systematic way to, to take in a little scripture every day, and I'd encourage you to do that. I'm a check-off-the-box kind of a guy. Maybe, maybe you are as well. It, it just helps me to stay focused. And then begin to, to pray specifically for God to act in your heart. What are you trying to teach me, Lord? And what are you doing in my life? to act in your heart, in your family, in your workplace, in your nation, in the world. God, God will give you things to pray about in order to release his power and make a difference in those situations. And then write down what God is, is teaching you. I find that's particularly important. And the answers to the prayers that, that uh, he provides. This is a $6 Office Max uh, journal. And... Uh, and this is what I do every, every morning. I, I look through a chapter of scripture. I ask God to reveal what he has for me. What, is he, what do you want me to teach me today, Lord? And I jot down a few observations about what I learned in that chapter and, and a prayer of application. Lord, do this in my life. Lord, do that in my life. And that's it. That's about uh, 20 minutes or so in, in the morning. That's the way I start my day. I'd encourage you to do that. Write it down. That, that way uh, you'll be developing a history of how God has worked in your life. Yeah, you'll know God. You'll, you'll know his track record in your life. You'll be in a powerful position for him to, to use you. And then ask God for opportunities to be used by him to make an eternal difference in the lives of, of people around you. Then stand by because God will answer that. He will provide you with those opportunities. So be alert and ask the Holy Spirit to empower you every day with his power and his wisdom for each interaction with the people you meet. There are no there are no coincidences in the lives of children of God. The people that come into our network of relationships are, are not by coincidence, they're by design. And making changes in people and the circumstances and the crises around us is not a do-it-yourself project. It, it requires the power of the Spirit of God. Let me challenge you. Become God's instrument. Make a difference around you for eternity in the lives of, of people. Sharpen yourself to be used for God's special purposes. Let's pray together, shall we?